Good morning, everybody. Welcome to part eight, all about waiting on the Lord. This is uh, episode number eight in our series, all about waiting on God. Um, and today we're talking about how to wait with discerning surrender. There are three main ideas that uh, often get neglected when we're waiting on the Lord. Good morning, James, Amy, Jeff, Becca, Xavier, Movement, everyone else who's watching that I didn't name. What's up, guys? I'll wait for a few more people to come on in, and then we'll get started. Let me know where you guys are watching from in the world. Let me know what God is teaching you and where you're watching around the world today or this evening. Morning for me. It's 10 o'clock where I'm from. Singapore. North Carolina. Amy, I wasn't too far from you when I visited South Carolina a couple weeks ago. Chicago, let's go. That's cool. And what is God teaching you guys? Just killing time. Orlando. Hey, not too far from me. I'm in Florida too. Seven o'clock in Phoenix, Arizona. James. You crazy. Lord trashing me to not be so cynical. That's, I love the way you said, you said that. Lord's trashing me not to be so cynical. Good morning, Jason. It's Chicago here. Okay, what's up? Hope you're feeling better, sister, and you're healing up quickly. California, learning obedience. Yeah, me too. It's a lifelong lesson. I felt a sneeze coming on for like the past 30 seconds and it hasn't come, so I'm just gonna break out any second and just blow myself back into the wall. Don't mind me. Michael says, good morning, I have a book I wrote I wanna send you. Sure, send it to my email. Contact at aboveapproachministry.com. It's like, come on, sneeze, just come out. I don't wanna be spinning the whole time. <coughs> Wonder, <coughs> there we go, praise God. Xavier, <coughs> I don't think I've ever sneezed on a live. He's teaching me that he places me in community. I'm thankful for the online church community to fellowship when I'm feeling a bit lonely. Are you on our Discord? Ah, we got John watching from the Hobbit Hole in Shire. Good to know he's living in a fantasy. Let's try and pull him out of delusion. What's up, John? Good to have you here, buddy. Xavier, have you joined our Discord church? Is that what you're talking about, the online community? Yeah, just discovered the Discord today. Yeah, come join the online community, man. We're in there all the time. At random times, but also planned times. All right. This is episode eight, all about waiting on the Lord. And um, while we're waiting on the Lord, often one of the toughest things to navigate is to know whether or not what we're waiting for is actually the will of God. And I know a lot of you are in that place. You, you, you know that certain dimensions of what you're waiting for is for sure God's will, but the other parts of it, how it's gonna happen, when it's gonna happen, what you're really looking at God to do, you're not really sure if God intends to do that. You're not really sure if that's his will. That's where discernment comes in as we wait on the Lord is there's a lot that we need to critically think through and reason through biblically and, and bring to God in prayer as we're waiting on God to do what we're believing him to, to do. And so it's like, am I really going to see what I'm waiting for God to do? What I'm believing for him to do? And this is where discerning comes in because it's crucial as we wait on God. And we'll address what it means to discern the will of God in the unclear things. But before we get to that, let me just preface this by letting you know that the culture we live in is so obsessed with what we don't know. We live in a culture that is so hyper-focused on the unknown and the secret things and the hidden things 
that we end up going after all the things we don't know and inevitably we neglect applying what we do know. We're a generation that's obsessed with the unknown and it's a detriment to us. We neglect to apply what we can live out because we're so focused on what we, God has yet to reveal and what he might not ever show us this side of heaven. And so as we discern the will of God in our waiting, there's going to be involved a degree of surrender. Discerning the will of God doesn't just mean I'm going to know for sure everything that is going to happen, everything that won't happen, and how it's going to happen. Discerning the will of God means, hey, whatever you want to show me, I'm cool with that. But I want to make sure that what I'm believing for is what you intend to do. And also, I'm willing to surrender my idea of the best life. I'm willing to lay that down and surrender it to you as the king. And that's hard. And that's hard because so many of us assume that our idea of the best life for us is, is, is indeed the best life. We assume that our wisdom is, is, is correct. We assume that what we're thinking is, is, is the best way to, to live life. And this is where Proverbs 3 comes into play to say, oh, actually, you know, um, submit to God. I don't butcher that because it's too early in the morning. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And we do that as we wait on God a lot of the times is we assume that my understanding of the world is correct. We assume that the way I'm evaluating this situation is correct. And that the, the, what I'm believing for God to do is what he should do because my understanding is correct and my wisdom is ultimate. And that's just not true. So as we discern the will of God in, in our waiting, there has to be surrender. Some of you have a really hard time surrendering. I have a hard time surrendering certain things too. But to be okay with your ideal plan not working out, that's where you, that's the sweet spot of surrender. You know, are you so confident in who God is and of what he said and of what you do know that you're all right about your plan not working out? Like you're okay about the things you don't know not working out the way you want. Are you okay with that? Because you're so sure of what you do know because you're standing on the truth. I was going to, I was going to call this episode, uh, you know, waiting in the truth. That was originally what I titled it, waiting in the truth. And the truth is at the center of this. You're surrendering to the truth of God's word. You're actually surrendering what you think God should do. And you're discerning biblically through everything that you see happening and don't see happening. And so I hope that at the end of this, you'll, you'll know how to discern the will of God better by using what you do know to inform your view of what you don't yet know and what you don't yet see and to give you clarity on how to navigate that through what you do know. And I also hope that at the end of this, you'll have a more honest uh, evaluation of your own life and where you're at and, and know whether or not you're surrendering to God the way you think. Because so many of us wait on God, but what we're saying is, God, I'm waiting for you to do what I say is best. And if you don't, then you're in the wrong. Waiting on God is saying, I'm waiting for you to move and I'm believing for you to do it and I'm asking for discernment as I'm, I'm ever changing and trying to figure out what you're doing. But even if you don't do what I think you should, even if you don't do what I'm expecting you to, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. So can you surrender to God what you want and what you desire? And can you surrender even knowing what you really want to know? Because all of us, in some way, we're like, God, could you just show me A, B, and C and help me know what to do here and help me to see what's happening? And what if God actually doesn't provide the amount of clarity around that situation that you want, but you have enough knowledge to move forward about God? You know enough about God to move forward in faith, even when you don't yet see 
those areas of your life clearly that you'd like to. And so the question becomes, how do we discern the will of God in our waiting? While we're waiting on him, what does it mean to surrender? I think Psalm 37, 34 is a good place to start. This is like what it means to wait on the Lord. The psalmist says, hey, wait for the Lord and keep his way. The keeping there is like a shepherd keeping watch over the sheep. It's to continually, you know, keep check on where his sheep are, what they're doing, keep an eye on them, just keep checking in because sheep wander off cliffs and stuff like that. But in our case, it's, hey, I'm constantly keeping check on your word to make sure that I'm not going from it. When you're driving, you know, you want to keep your eyes on the road so that you because you, you tend to, you know, veer toward where your eyes are wandering. That's just what happens. And so as I'm driving, you know, my kids might be screaming and throwing fits in the background and throwing crackers at me in the front. And, and my wife's just like, I'm going to jump out of the car. And I, all that's happening, but I, I, I can periodically check on what's happening, but I need to mainly keep my eyes on the road. So when we keep the way of God, what we're saying is, hey, the scripture, it, the word of God is where my focus is. And as I live life, as I make decisions, as I interact with people, as I move forward in life, I'm constantly daily checking back with the standard of God's word to make sure that I'm not wandering from the path of truth. So waiting for God means keeping his way. It means obeying. That's what it means to wait on God is you're doing what he's told you to do. You're keeping the commandments of God. You're keeping the ways that are consistent with his character. You're making decisions that are consistent with the truth. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. And so those who keep the way of God in truth and in faith, knowing that he makes us righteous through our faith in his son, by his grace, we will keep his way out of gratitude, out of, out of love, out of thankfulness. And those who keep the way of God, they're exalted. Those who don't, they're actually cut off and they're you know, declared to be wicked because they had no faith. They didn't trust in the God of Israel. So, you know, you, when you wonder, hey, how do I discern the will of God? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It really simply means to keep doing what you know he's called you to. And you don't compromise your values. Well, what if I don't keep his way perfectly? He didn't say keep it perfectly in order to like effectively do anything, okay? The keeping here is um, an overflow of us being righteous in Christ. You, you can't meet the standard of God. This is not, that's not what he's saying here. Hey, wait for the Lord and meet the standard of God perfectly. Christ has done that for us. He's been perfect in our place. So, so that burden is lifted so I can go and live in obedience from a place of knowing I'm already secure in Christ. I'm not trying to gain anything. I'm not trying to keep hold of anything. I'm not trying to secure anything. He secures me. And so while you wait with discerning surrender, that's what I'm calling this. If you didn't already look at the title, Waiting with discerning surrender means it's not mindless, it's not without reason, it's not without evidence, and it's not like just taking a shot in the dark, throwing up your life, hoping someone grabs onto it. You know who he is. You know what he said to do. You know the commands of God. You know the path of truth he's marked out for your life. And you seek to keep that from a place of knowing that I'm secure in him and I just want to live like the best child of God I can. Okay, so it's not half-hearted obedience. It's not conditional. It's not this mindless surrender. It's rooted in knowing who God is. The word of God is central to this whole conversation. And if you don't know his word, you won't know his ways. 
If you don't meditate on his ways, you won't know his character. When it comes to situations where you need to make a decision on the fly, you won't know who he is in that, in that you know, situation to appropriately make the right decision. It seems like the Bible screen is scrolling well today, so praise God for that. I didn't check like I should have. Dummy that I am. Okay, so waiting on God means I'm surrendering my ways, my idea of right and wrong, my idea of good and evil to what God says in his word is true. What he says is evil. What he says is good. What he says is true. What he says I should live out. What he says should navigate, you know, and, and inform my decisions. I'm surrendering to the ways and truth of God in his word. Not the other way around, okay? We're not surrendering what we know of God's word in order to go after what we want. Let me take you to the ultimate example of surrender. You know, his name is Jesus. Yeshua. Salvation. This is what the one who comes to bring our salvation is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he's arrested. He says, um, well, he comes out with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, he goes to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down. It's like that general kind of measuring. I was about the size of a cow. Knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, watch. Watch this. Father, if you are willing, if you're willing, good morning, sunshine, remove this cup from me. What does Jesus desire in this moment? He desires for the Father, if he's, desire, if he's willing to, to remove this cup that he's about to drink. The cup of judgment. The cup of wrath against sin. The cup of justice against evil. Nevertheless, not my will. You know what Adam and Eve screamed in the garden when they chose to eat from the forbidden tree? They said, my will be done, not God's. Jesus flips that on his head. And he comes to show us, no, real abundant life is saying, not what I want, not what I think is true, not what I think you should do, God, but, but your will be done. Does, does, does Jesus have a preference here? Does he have a legitimate human will that he's surrendering to the feet of his, at the feet of his father? He does. Is it wrong to have a preference? No. Is it wrong to have desires that are often contrary to God and then he has to correct those? No, it's not wrong to initially have them. It's wrong to follow them ultimately and say, you know what, forget what God says. I'm going to go after what I think is good. That's wrong. But to have that initial desire is not wrong because what you do with that is whether or not, is going to determine whether or not it becomes a bad thing. Jesus here goes, I have a will to avoid this. So God, Father, if there's any way to avoid this, any other way, remove it. Nevertheless, even if you don't, I don't want my human will to be done if it contradicts yours, Father. So yours be done. Jesus knows what he has to do. There's no question about it. He said it over and over and over, all the way up to this point, telling the disciples, look, you bozos, you don't understand. I'm going to die, rise again, and all these different things come into play, and they're like, we don't understand. But don't ask him, because then he'll think we're idiots. They don't get it. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And all the while, he goes, not 
what I want. Because if it's not what you want, I don't want that. In other words, here's what he says. I want something, but not more than I want what God wants for me. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. You ever like cried so much that you just cried yourself to sleep? The story of my childhood. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The temptation all throughout the life and ministry of Jesus is to abandon the will of the Father and do what he wants. To conquer, to you know, just, just stand above, to not serve. He does the opposite. He serves. He humbles himself. He lays down his preference. He lays down his opinion at the feet of the Father. And says, here's what I want. But I don't really care if it contradicts what you want. I want what you want more than what my human will desires. Philippians 2 kind of expands on this. It says, have this mind among yourselves, in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even though he was in the form of God, anyone who denies the deity of Jesus has never read Philippians 2.5. Form is not just external, outward appearance or form. Lord, it's actually referring to essence and substance internally. It's both and. Even though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In what way? Well, he chose to empty himself. How? Did he stop being God? No. He took on the form of a servant. He added humanity to his divinity. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, like legitimate human essence, he took on a real human nature, he humbled himself. What did he do? Well, he became obedient to the point of death. This word right here is what it means to wait on God. Is your obedience doesn't stop at a certain point of waiting. Where you know what? I, I've been sitting here long enough, God. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to move on. I know this will violate your word, but at least the ends will justify the means. It won't. It won't. Lots of people will be saved though, God, trust me. If I just kind of walk around this and I know in the minute, just in this moment, it's going to compromise my values, but in the end, lots of people are going to hear about you. I have to compromise a bit. God's not, this is what people don't understand. If you feel the need to compromise your values and what you know God has told you to do, God's not leading you to do that. God doesn't lead you into a situation where you have to compromise your values. That's not what our God does. He's going to lead you into a situation where you're tempted to compromise your values, but there's a better way to do it, even though it looks harder. That's what our God does, is he shows you the strength that he supplies you by putting you up against the wall. And he lets you sit there. He does. He lets you sit there. And it's your choice whether you're going to continue to do what he told you to do, or whether you're going to get antsy, or bored, or anxious, or frustrated, or just frankly discouraged and confused and be like, you know what? I tried the God thing. I did what he said. Nothing worked out the way I wanted. Nothing changed. I didn't see progress in my life. I actually got, you know, less money in my account now and less people around me. So you know what? I tried it God's way. 
My back's been up against the wall long enough. I'm going to do what I want. And it's in those situations that you miss out on the greatest reward when you compromise your values and you walk away from doing what you know he told you to do. He told you to stay faithful. You, there's enough in scripture f to keep us busy for a million lifetimes. You know why? Because none of us can perfectly do it. There's always growth to be had. I can always grow in patience. I can always grow in compassion. I can always grow in humility. I can always choose to prefer someone else more than myself. I can do that in a better way. So Jesus becomes obedient. You know what that means? That means there was a command, there was a standard for Jesus to choose to conform his life to. And him being the standard and the over, he's literally the ways of God in perfect, you know, embodiment, right? So he's God in humanity or in human form, right? He's God among us. But he still chooses that human part of him, that human will, desires not to be obedient. So what does he do? He chooses obedience anyway. To the point of death. What kind of obedience is that? Where it's like, I've been faithful, I've been doing what you say, and then you're faced with death, and God says, move forward. And you go, yeah, but if I do what you say, that's going to end my life. What kind of faithful obedience does that take? What kind of surrender does that take to look death in the face and walk right into it knowing God's telling you to be obedient instead of running away and cowering? Not that everyone's going to die a martyr, but if it came down to it, this is the question. This is what, you know, people don't want to admit that there is a chance. There's a chance that one day in your life, it's like super hot in here, one day in your life, you might be called to walk straight into death. And that's going to mean obedience. And to walk away from that and to avoid that is, to be, is going to be disobedience. We don't ever think about this. Will you prefer the glory of God over even your own temporary physical human life? Will you choose to obey even in the face of death, even in the, the valley of the shadow of death? Will you still follow the good shepherd when he's saying, come on, come on, let's go. And you're going, I don't. That looks pretty scary. I think I'm going to die if I do that. And he goes, come on. You don't need to know how it's going to work out. I told you to come here. Will you follow the good shepherd even into what looks completely opposite of what you thought he was going to do? When God's leading you into a different plan than you originally intended for him to make work out in your life. And you're like, hey, I had a different plan, God. I thought financially I'd be more secure. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought like I'd have a, have a job where I'm good. You're calling me to go into something that is completely opposite of what I'm wanting you to do. Can you still do it? Will you still do it? Or does your obedience depend on you knowing the results that will work out? Will you only obey when you know it will result in what you want God to do for you? Or will you even obey when you don't know the results? And secondly, will you even obey when the results God clearly tells you are going to be contrary to what you want him to do in your life? Will you still do it? This is, this is where the human will is laid down on a daily basis. When Jesus says, everyone wants to come after me, 
has to deny themselves. What's that mean? Your self needs to be denied. Your self that is opposed to God, that, you know, this fleshly body, which is no longer me, I get that, but I'm in a shell, a body that wants, wants things and has passions that are contrary to God's will for me. Will I just do whatever this body wants? Or will I do what he wants for me with this body? And will this body be a tool or a master? Jesus masters his body to the point of dying a gruesome death with agony and torture and mockery and all that you can imagine that is negative for the human condition. He willingly walks right into it. After saying, I don't want to, Father, but if you want me to, your will be done, not mine. That's what it means to wait on God. Is even if your idea of what God should do, even if he doesn't do that, and you know he's not going to, and he's saying, hey, come follow me, keep doing what I told you to do, you're willing to do it. Death on a cross is what he went through. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And by the way, this quote right here, every knee will bow. It's only said of God in Isaiah 45. He says in Isaiah 45, 23, by myself, I have sworn this word shall not return void. Every knee will bow to me. And this is what the God of Israel says in Isaiah 45. And yet Paul makes it about Christ. It's not a contradiction. It's, it's, it's a clarifying statement to let you know who Jesus is. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, as, as we navigate this, you now have an example of what it looks like to face your flesh in the face to face death in the face, and the good shepherd is on the other side saying, hey, come walk right through it. Come to me. And you're going, that means I have to do the opposite of what my flesh wants. I have to give that up. I have to surrender whatever it is that I really want in the body. And I potentially am walking into what looks like death. Okay. I'll do it. We're going to see in a minute that obedience Though it is in a moment, I choose to obey now, I choose to obey later. Like there's countless moments, opportunities to obey God throughout my day, for sure. But as you're going to see in a minute, to wait on God is to continue in obedience. In other words, instead of looking at obedience like something to check off today, like oh, I obeyed God eight times, now that I can... Now that I've done that, I can just go and do whatever I want because I obeyed God eight times. So now I can give into my flesh. I can justify the, my, my, my lustful passions. I can just give into them because I obeyed God eight times. That's good enough today. A lot of us view obedience like that. Like it's a checklist that allows me to go and live however I want because I did what you wanted. Obedience is going in this moment. I'm choosing to obey you. Okay. And the next time, oh God. I'm really desiring to obey you the next opportunity I have to either choose the flesh or choose you. Help me to choose you. It's looking ahead, knowing that obedience is a lifestyle, not just a moment. Not just a moment. 
And though it is a compilation of all the moments you choose to obey, to keep the ways of God, to look at him, is to say, I want you to guide my life. Not just this moment, my life. How do you discern the will of God in your waiting? Well, you need to know what God's will is for you. That's what we're trying to figure out. I know. There is God's secret will for you. The things you don't know he's going to do in your life. And there is God's general will for all of his people. So, so scripture gives us a roadmap of what every believer should be aiming for. Not a checklist, a roadmap. Because a roadmap is very different. A checklist is going boom, boom, boom. I did it, now I can do whatever I want. A roadmap is saying, here's how you navigate your life on a daily, daily basis. Here's how you navigate life. So the word of God presents us a clear, general picture of what every believer should be going for, should be trying to live after. It's Jesus, he's the one. But that is not the secret personal will of God for my life and how he's going to use me as a vessel and how he's going to use you as a vessel and the gifts and experiences and the people you're going to reach and the moment to moment decisions and and where you're going to live. That's different. So there's the general will that God has for all of his people. Then there's the personal secret will of God for each person, right? That we're called to press into him to, to find out. And he'll disclose that as much as he wants. I don't get to decide the degree of disclosure. As much as you want to go, hey, God, I'm going to pray until you show me everything. He's going, I know what you need to know. I'll tell you what you need to know. You don't decide what you do. Okay. I don't know why the internet cut out there for a second. I'm keeping an eye on it. Weird. Um, yeah, John, you're right. There is some buffering. I'm looking at it though. It's good for now. <clears throat> Please stay good. Our internet provider is always doing, doing like random stuff. <laughs> like out there on the internet lines, just, just sawing away. It's like, what are you, what are you doing, man? Uh, just fixing the internets. You're cutting a tree that has no connection. Okay, you know, do your thing, man. You, do your thing. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge. He's our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth gives way. Which, by the way, that's not like a nice scenario. You don't just wake up and go, oh, the earth gave way. What a good day. The earth giving way is like, think of when, uh, ah, I forget who it is that opposed Moses and they wanted to usurp his authority. Korah, right? Korah and his rebellion, the earth swallowed them up. So that's the idea here. The earth giving way, the ground you stand on that you think is so reliable, actually just falling out from underneath you. Even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, even though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. <sighs> you wonder how that's even possible. I'm going to come back to Psalm 46, but you wonder how that's even possible. And here's, here's how a person 
can look absolute chaos in the face. A believer. Here's how a believer can look at the world around them falling apart, biblical prophecy happening right in front of them, and just go with a big old smile on their face. Like that meme with the dog whose house is on fire all around him, he's sitting in a chair. This is fine. It's like the believer. This is fine. We knew this would happen. How does a believer look, look at everything? Absolute hell breaking out and go, you know what? I don't fear. It's because they know the general will of God. Look at Ephesians 5.17. It says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he'll go on specifically, hey, God's will for you is not to get drunk. God's will for you is not to engage in debauchery. God's will for you is to be filled with the Spirit and to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sing with melody in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks for everything, in everything, in the name of Jesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there, Paul's going to contextually define what the will of God is. But the idea still stands. Believers, you, you need to get this. Stephen, thank you for that incredible gift. You guys are just... These live streams, you guys are killing it. Guys, thank you for supporting this ministry and making it happen. You know we're crowdfunded, so all this is only possible because of generous supporters like Stephen and you guys. Thank you. When he says, understand the will of the Lord, do you know what that means? <laughs> like, guys, you and I have the privilege and the honor of knowing what the will of the Lord is. He's, he's invited you to come and know what he desires for your life. There's no excuse. There are some things God knows we can't know yet, and it's not the right time. There are some things that we technically in this life aren't, aren't gonna know until we stand before him and we know fully. There are some things that God is progressively disclosing as he matures us to be able to handle that information. But you're not gonna know everything. Uh, to understand the will of the Lord here is to understand what you need to know to live a life of godliness. For instance, I'm gonna give you some scriptures to go and explore on your own. I'm just giving you a general bullet point list of hey, this is, this, is, this is what God wants for all of his people. This is what God wants even for the world to come in to his family and to know him. This is what God wants, okay? And as I know the general will of God, it will help me navigate the personal hidden will of God for my life. Because as you're waiting on God, you're wondering, is this for me? Am I believing for the wrong thing, like an incredible amount of financial stability to come? And I really waiting for what you're going to do, which is a spouse. And, and I'm believing that they're going to love God and they're going to walk in your ways and they're going to be a part of your healing process for me. Am I believing for the right things? How you navigate and discern that is by having the best understanding of the general will of God revealed in scripture. Okay. So write these down. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 tells us God desires the salvation of all people. Now that's enough for me to move forward and go, okay, I should live a life that aligns with that truth. God, if you want the world to know you, but you've given them free will and you know a lot of them won't, then I want to be a part of that reconciliation. I want to live a life that is inviting people, that is participating with you to reach into this dark world and pull people out into the light. I want to be a part of that. 
So I'm gonna live a life that is consistent with that. I'm gonna talk to my neighbors. I'm gonna step out in faith. At the grocery store, I'm gonna ask the clerk how their day is going and look for an opportunity to share Jesus. I'm gonna be in the online Discord church and just encourage people who are just new in the faith and they're unsure and they're insecure. And I wanna be a vessel to encourage and strengthen their faith, that they would be secure in Christ, that they would go out and share the gospel even more. God, God's will for your life is your faithful endurance. 1 Peter 2.15, your faithful endurance. So I should pray that God would enable and empower me to faithfully endure through tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 tells me that God wants our daily transformation, which is not always recognizable. It's not always quantifiable in a, in a daily sense where I'm like, oh, look, compared to yesterday, look how I, my patience level was a 9.8. Yesterday was a 9.7. The point is, I want to live a life that is pursuing what brings about transformation. I wanna position myself daily to be transformed by the king. You know, and John 17 tells us that the word of God sanctifies us, that the spirit of God takes the word and he drives it into our hearts so it begins to come out of us. So I should spend time reading the scriptures. I should spend time praying. I should be a part of a, a a weekly Bible study group in my church. I should call some neighbors together and say, hey, you guys just wanna pray? I should pray with my wife. I should spend the evening time with my spouse instead of mindlessly absorbing Netflix. We can spend time intentionally seeking God. So this is, this is how you navigate the, how do I know I want what God wants for me? How do I know I'm waiting for what God desires to do in my life? What if I'm waiting for the wrong thing? What if I'm waiting for something he's never gonna do in my life? I don't wanna be disappointed. You need to know the general will of God. And this is just a bullet point list. This is not everything. This is just to give you a clear enough picture of what to go after. And then this helps you navigate through what you don't know. It helps bring clarity to what you don't yet know God is doing in your life. So he wants the eternal salvation of people. He wants your faithful endurance. He wants your daily transformation. He wants your continual gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, some of y'all are professional complainers. You know how to take the best news and twist it into like the most depressing situation. You know how to look for that one percentage of depression and pull it out and magnify it. You can't be thankful, you just don't know how. Everything has to be a complaining competition. It's like, bro, God has called you to continual gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. 2 Peter 3.9, God desires for people not to perish. Do you live a life that testifies of that truth? Like if someone looked at your life, just followed you around for like a few months, would they see a person that believes their God doesn't want people to perish? Or would they see this, this aggressive, Bible-thumping, rude, uh, I don't know, self-righteous, hypocritical, sin-seeking missile? that's like always looking for the wrong and always trying to trap people in their words and always trying to use the word of God to stand above people? You know, or do they see a, a person who serves a God who's compassionate and wants people to come to repentance? Matthew 27, 37 through 40, the sum of the law and the prophets is love. So what do you think God desires for us generally? He wants you to love him and love him those who are made in his image. 
So it goes like this. If I'm not being faithful with what I do know, why would I ask God to reveal to me what I don't know so I can have more to be like unfaithful with? When I say like we live in a, a culture that is obsessed with information. We're obsessed with new data. We have become the Greeks. We've become the people in Athens where they just every day they're saying, tell me something new I don't know. We've become that. It's just like we cannot apply what we do know because we're so busy trying to learn something that we have yet to come to understand just so we can add something new to my list of things that I don't apply to my life. God wants you to love him and love people. And if that's not at the top of your list, if that's not on your radar, bro, like if that's not at all a part of your desires, then I find it hard to believe that you're waiting for God to do the right things. I really do. Because again, the general will of God provides for us the framework, not just for what to wait for, but for how to wait for it. While I'm waiting for God to do what I'm not even, what I'm pretty confident he's going to do in my life. I believe he's going to do this. I believe he's going to change my situation. I believe he's going to come through and make sure the house doesn't foreclose. While I'm waiting for God to do that, I should absolutely do what I know he's called me to do. Pursue transformation. Trust that he's planting seed. Go out and be a vessel of God's love to people. Like seek to interact with people in a way that reveals the character of God. Like, that's what I want to be doing. But so often, people are crippled, paralyzed spiritually. You're up there in your spiritual wheelchairs, wheelchairs going, I'm just waiting for God to move. It's like, get out of your wheelchair spiritually. You can move. You can do a lot while you're waiting. You can do a lot while you're waiting for God to do what you're not even sure he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know if he's going to come through the way I want but I at least could occupy my time with what I know is the general will of God. John 15, 12 tells us he desires growing obedience. You see growth in your obedience to God. John 17, 3, God's will is for us to know him better, to know him, intimacy, the presence of God, relationship with God, investing into that friendship. That's what he wants. So if, if you don't find yourself desiring or even pursuing any of the general will of God in scripture, I really find it hard to believe that you're waiting for the right things. John 15, 8, his desire is good fruit, the fruit of his character to be produced in your life. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, his desire is for you to make disciples. That's for the 12 apostles, brother. Actually, 11, because Judas was gone and he hung himself. Hey, Franklin, I didn't ask. This is for everyone. All people who call themselves children of God, to some degree, you are called to make disciples. Even if there's one person for the rest of your life that you're going to disciple, that's making disciples. So don't minimize the small opportunities in your life that can produce big things, just because you're not filling stadiums, just because you're not out there preaching you know, on the streets, just because you're not in churches behind pulpits, you know, discipling th hundreds of people, you don't have to be. We all have degrees of influence. 
We all have degrees of disciple making. And when you compare, you get complacent. And when you're focused on what other people are doing, you neglect what God's called you to do. Because I don't know if I'll ever do it like them. God never told you to do it like them. He said, use your gifts, use your personality, seek him and let him be, you know, produce the overflow in your life. Make disciples. That just, all that means is teach. Share what you know about God with someone. In an Instagram message, in your household, your children, your spouse, that neighbor down the street who keeps bugging you about, are you okay if my dog, I don't freaking care about your dog. Like, come into my house though, I'll tell you about Jesus. Do you have anyone in your life? you're teaching them what you know. Well, I don't know apologetics and the foundations. What has Jesus done for you? List that out. Share it with someone in an email. See where God brings that. You might have an opportunity to start walking with someone through life. So, number one, it's know God's general will for you. Right? Know God's general will for you. And, and I promise... There's something that God has wired in the universe, in his people's lives, where if you occupy your time with doing what he's told you to do, clarity comes in the areas of what you're not sure to do. Well, I don't know what to do about my daughter walking away. I don't know about to do with my spouse and we're constantly butting heads and I've tried to, I don't know what to do about this financial situation. Are you asking me to get a second job? Are you asking me to be faithful and wait and trust that what I'm doing is enough? Like those areas of your life that are unclear, clarity comes with, you know, in the timing of God. When you go, you know what, while I'm waiting, I'm going to do what I know you've told me to. Number two, it's this. Don't just know God's general will for you. Know what God is absolutely doing, even if I don't partner with him. Like there are some things God will do only if you partner with him. Not because he's limited, but because he's gracious, right? But even if you choose not to partner with him and do those things, oh, his plan is moving forward nonetheless. His plan's gonna happen whether you're a part of it or not. So there are things that God is waiting to partner with people to do that don't have any bearing on the grand scheme of what he's doing. And then there are things that God's going, look, I'm gonna do this in humanity, in the world, whether people partner with me or not, it's happening. Things like Romans chapter 8, 28 through 29, where he says, we know. So when I navigate what I don't know and I'm discerning the will of God and surrendering as I'm waiting on him, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So what do we know? We know no matter what, come hell, come high waters, come the perfect scenario in all things that are happening around, in, through me. God is taking all of those ingredients and he's stirring it up in his big old divine bowl of cookie dough. And you know what he's doing? He's making it all work out for our good. Everything, everything. That's comforting to know. Some of you have been waiting for that word. 
because you're just like, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't even see him moving. I see no progress. I'm trying to love him. I'm being faithful. He's not doing anything I'm believing him for. Here's what you know for sure. Here's what you know for sure. This is not a negotiable. This is not conditional. This is not maybe. Here's what you know for sure. In your waiting, even if you're not doing what he's called you to do, even if you are, that he's taking everything. And for his children specifically, this promise is for the people of God. He's taken everything. All the heartbreak, all the disappointment, all the breakthrough, all the dealings with addiction, all the frustrating situations, all the times people have stabbed you in the back, all the times people have let you down and walked away, all of this, the dog in your life that you're like, stop throwing up on that same piece of carpet, Jeremy, my dog, all of that is working together for your good. Psalm chapter 52, the whole dog throwing up was very specific, but I saw Rocky Chan and I know he's dealing with a dog right now. Psalm 52, six through nine, it says, the righteous shall see and fear. They shall laugh at him who said, uh, saying, see the man who wouldn't make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Do you? Do you? Do you trust in the love of God forever? I will thank you forever because you've done it. Done what? I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So you know what I know God is doing? He's exalting the righteous, ultimately, resurrection, and he's going to destroy the wicked. The adversary, all the spiritual rebels, all those that are opposed to God will be removed from the earth. Is that comforting? To know that God has promised us a new creation, a new world where righteousness dwells, where the people of God get to reign with Christ. Like that's coming, resurrection, uh, being exalted, being rewarded, reigning with Christ, glorified bodies. These are things we know God is doing and there's nothing that's gonna stop it, nothing. Psalm 115 verse three, this is what God does in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Only the, no, all that he pleases. I just disagree with it. He does all that he pleases. He didn't need you to vote him in. He doesn't need your opinion to, to validate him. He doesn't need your approval. God in the heavens and us being the creation, he does whatever he wants. But we know that what he does is consistent with his unchanging character. He is good, he is righteous, he is loving, he is just. He is just, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger. So when I know God's general will for my life in scripture, which assumes you're reading the word of God. Some of you aren't, some of you are not. And it's robbing you of all that God wants to do in your life. You're begging God for joy while neglecting the scriptures that actually bring it. You're begging God for peace and comfort while you're just sitting on your Bible, you know, using it as a little, as a steps tool. I can't reach that. Oh, like a Bible. <clears throat> Got it. Go back where you go, Bible, on my shelf. And you're missing out on possibly the answer to your prayer request. God, I just wanna feel you, I just wanna be near. 
I just want to hear your voice. I want comfort. I want joy. I want want perspective. And you haven't opened your Bible since September? And you go to church. You go to church. You'll listen to the sermon. But the minute you get in your car, it's lunchtime. And most of that is gone. Relying on the pastor. If my relationship with God is built on a pastor or a church service, I really am not walking with God as, as much as I could be. And some of you have a relationship with God that is built on what other people tell you about God. You have yet to open the scriptures yourself. You don't have devotional. You don't have quiet time. So I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm encouraging you like, open the, the, the word of God to know his ways. God Almighty who reigns in the heavens and holds all things together by his power. He's inviting you to know him. He's inviting you to know his general plan and will for all people. And he's inviting you to even ask him about those hidden secret things about your personal life. So this is where we get to discern his secret will for you. And you go, why do you keep saying secret will? Because there are some things God reveals in a general way. This is what we call general revelation, like the Bible. There are some things, like Deuteronomy 29, 29, where God will say, hey, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what is the revealed truth in this passage? It's the law of God for the, for the people of Israel. What are the secret things? Well, I think the New Testament speaks to the secret things as being all those dimensions of what God is doing, what he's going to do through his son, what he's going to do through his church, what he's going to do with the gospel. All those secret things that from the vantage point of these Israelites, they don't know about. But eventually, when Jesus comes, you'll look back at the Old Testament and see him all throughout the Old Testament. See the, the secret, you know, foreshadowing pictures of the Messiah and how the gospel was, all, all these different things. So there are secret things that belong to God. Here's what I want to take you to. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. This is a great scripture. So, I, I know each of us has an idea of how much information God should disclose to us. It's like, God, if you want me to walk faithfully, if you're a good God, if you're a loving father, then you'll tell me about my future spouse. You'll tell me where they are so I can at least move there, right? You'll tell me what job to take at least and how much money I should expect with this job so I can start applying for those jobs. And we have this idea of what God should reveal to us. That's called entitlement. It's called entitlement to say, God, you should, whoa, 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 God, God should do nothing good for us. The fact that he does is a gift of his grace, not something you deserve or you've earned. First Corinthians 2, 9 says, look, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart of man has imagined. I love that the heart of man is the source of the imaginations. We often think of the imaginations as like being the brain's almost uh, all the work of the brain. It's not. It's actually the, 
the heart of man, the, the soul of a man, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, okay, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So how does God reveal to us the things that he's prepared for us? Well, through the Spirit of God indwelling us. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? Which is why, I think I've said this before, I don't believe there's any possibility for uh, humanity to invent technology that can read the minds of people. Because the mind, the thoughts, those are immaterial things that can't be measured or quantified or known by physical means. The mind is the immaterial part of the person that is only known to the person that owns that mind or that soul. So I don't believe there's ever going to be a, 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 an, a, the ability of hum, humanity to, to achieve that. Because the Old Testament said only God knows the thoughts of a man. So, watch this. He goes, hey, let me just phrase it like this. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? And you go, ah, I don't know, Dr. Seuss, tell me. Also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the, the, the answer to this question, apparently, is no one. No one knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of that person. And even then... I'm not always aware of the thoughts I'm having. I don't always discern those correctly. Also, in the same way, no one, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The Spirit of God. Okay? Is that true? It's very true. But look, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, who is from God. Why? that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now, is he limiting that to only the things God has prepared for us? In other words, are the things that God gives us understanding about, are those only things pertaining to our future experience as believers? No, that's part of it. But the key here is understanding. The Spirit of God is, if you might use this language, our interpreter. Think of the divine mind, the infinite divine mind of God and the spiritual truth he wants to communicate to physical, fallen, fallible human beings like us. How is he going to communicate to us? Well, there's going to be interpretation. He knows how to communicate on our level. But there's spiritual truth that is simply beyond the physical brain, right, and our limited understanding that is given to us by his spirit. That's why he makes us born again, right? So that now I have a nature and a heart and a mind and the spirit of God to help me um, understand what it is that God wants me to know. What God wants me to know. So these things, as well as the spirit, are sourced in God. Meaning that for Paul, the argument here is, listen, God has decided to freely give us understanding of those spiritual things that the unbeliever goes, I don't get it. I'm reading the same text you are, and I'm not seeing that. 
And that's why Paul talks about the veil that lies over the hearts of people who read the same law and the same word. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So Paul is explaining how he preaches the gospel, how he brings clarity to the truth, how understanding happens. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Who are the spiritual people here? Well, he's going to qualify the carnal believers here in Corinth as not being spiritual, but as being carnal. So the spiritual truths God wants us to know and like has made available to us apparently can only be known by those who are spiritual. A similar statement is made in Galatians 5 that just came to mind. I remember talking about this. Um, it's six. Six. Yes. <laughs> I sound... I sounded unconfident, but I am very confident now. Galatians 6.1, it says, Look, brothers, if anyone's caught in any, any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual, same language, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay? So the spiritual person is able to help the person who's caught in a sin, a transgression, a sinful habit, an addiction, whatever it is. He's already qualified what it means to be spiritual, like a few verses before. It's not just to live by the Spirit positionally. We're all alive by the Spirit if you're a child of God. It's to keep in step or walk with the Spirit. This is a spiritual person. Okay? Someone who is spiritual is keeping in step with and walking by the Spirit. Okay, so we go back to 1 Corinthians. The spiritual person, who I would say contextually, is someone who is walking by the Spirit of God. They're following the leading of the shepherd. The word of God is, is, is leading their life and guiding their decisions and informing how they live their life. That's a spiritual person. That person, right, can interpret the spiritual truths freely given to us by the spirit of God. So it's one thing to have the interpreter. It's another thing to be in a position to understand what the interpreter is getting us to, to know. So all this to say, look, the secret things God has for you and I to know. Well, we have no idea. I, I wonder this all the time. Like, really. I wake up each day and I go, man, Lord, how much do I not know that you want me to know right now in this moment of time? How much am I missing out on because, frankly, I'm not seeking you enough or I'm not desiring it or I'm not pressing into you or I'm not walking by the Spirit. I'm not aware of your, your presence throughout the day. How much... Are you like, man, I would love to just give this all to you if you would come to me. How much am I missing out on? Because I'm simply not pursuing, seeking after, or even positioned to receive it. There's so much God wants to freely give. This spiritual understanding. These thoughts of God. And you can't limit this to just the gospel. Or just the spiritual revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is, this, these are the thoughts of God generally. But the example Paul uses refers to what God has prepared for those who love him in the gospel, right? And so what I want you to see is that, let me take you to Romans 12 too. This is why the mind needs to be renewed. And I point to my brain because typically that's what people think of. When you think about the body, if I were to ask you, where's your mind, you'd point to your head, but it's immaterial. And the mind is really the, 
the control center of the person. So the control center of my life. Romans 12, 2, here's why the mind has to be renewed. So that I can recognize those moments where the Spirit of God is speaking. Where I can recognize and discern those moments where the Spirit of God is leading or prompting or convicting or speaking to me. Now, this doesn't limit the ability of God to speak. This actually magnifies His grace in that He works with us where we are. And He calls us higher as we're waiting on Him. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that by testing. Here's why my mind needs to be renewed. This is part of the reason. You go, why do, why do I need to sit with the Word of God and meditate and sit in the presence of God and pray? Because your mind is being renewed, transformed, healed, whatever it is, by God and His Word. As the Spirit of God goes to work on you, He's renewing and sanctifying and transforming and purifying you. So that now, now with that renewed mind, by testing, you can discern what is the will of God. Now hold on. Why is discernment needed when the, the scriptures are very clear on what the general will of God is? Because I don't believe this is talking about the general will of God. This is about, this is about discerning the will of God, the secret personal will of God for my life as, part of a, as a specific part in the body, with specific gifts, with a specific calling, with specific experiences and a specific upbringing and a specific culture, with specific people to reach, with specific people around me. There's a personal call on my life and on yours. So we're all going to do the general will of God. And I keep drawing a square because it just makes, helps me understand this is the framework. And then I see my specific role in light of the general will of God. We're all going to do essentially the same general thing in different ways, in different degrees, with different gifts for different people and different times in, in human history. Okay, So the will of God here requires discernment. Your ability to discern the will of God for your life is directly related to how much your mind has been renewed. This should motivate you guys to read the scriptures. Because essentially what I'm saying is the more you sit at the feet of Jesus and you let him teach you his word, the more you're going to recognize and accurately discern when he's navigating you throughout those moments that you're living all, you know, throughout your life where you don't have the word of God open in front of you, but you have it written on your heart. Where you won't be able to stop and pray for an hour, but you've spent enough time in his presence to know in this moment what is his will. Well, it's going to be good. It's going to be acceptable and it's going to be perfect. Now, these are general descriptions. I can easily look at a situation and go, you know what? That's good. That's acceptable to me. That looks perfect to me. This is not about what you and I define as good, acceptable, and perfect, but what he does. So the more I meditate and think on and study what God says is good, acceptable, and perfect, the more easily I'll be able to recognize what is good, acceptable, and perfect in my life. This is the personal will of God for you, for his church. You know, Ephesians 5 says the same thing. Probably won't come up. There we go. Ephesians 8, 5, 8. 
says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. So he's a, he addresses the nature and the essence of what you and I were before Jesus. You were, I was darkness. I was in darkness. I engaged in darkness. I was darkness. This is the core of an unbeliever separated from God, living in rebellion and disobedience outside of the garden presence of God. This is what you have is darkness. We were not just in it, we were it. But now you are light in Jesus. Why? Because he's the light of the, of the world. He fills you with his light to be his light in the world. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That sounds exactly like what he said in Romans 12, except they're different descripting words, descriptive words, right? What is good, like acceptable, right? What is true, what is perfect, same ideas. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When you don't try and discern, you end up assuming to know best. If I don't exercise discernment, where's my Bible? It's exactly what you want to hear an online teacher say, where's my Bible? When I, uh, well, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Gosh darn it. The point of what I was trying to say is just discernment is required. Okay, this. When I don't actively engage my discerning mind in situations, when I don't run through my understanding of scripture before I make a decision and go, hold on, what does the scripture say? Before I move forward with this relationship, before I join you in your endeavors, before I go with you where you're going, I need to think about what the word of God says. Let me just run through that real quick. Supercomputer, data analysis complete. Hey, based on what I know about God's word, that's not a good decision, so I'm not gonna do that. To not exercise discernment is to go, I don't need to think about any other standard or any truth. I know what is good for me without being guided. I just, I know what's good. I know what's true. I know what's right. You really don't. Not without thinking about what God says is true first. You don't. And this is why the word of God has to touch the subconscious mind. I mean, that, that part of you that runs on autopilot and you're not even aware of, I want God to touch that part of me so that when w my default response, my default reaction, when I'm on autopilot, I, I'm, I'm doing what I've meditated on. I'm doing the word of God. I want that. That's hard. But as you navigate life and you're like, what is God's will? Am I waiting for the right thing? Discern what is pleasing to him. Now you can, now that you're children of light. You can you can think through what God defines as good, what he says is evil, what scripture says about this and go, hmm. And if it's not as clear, as black and white in scripture as you'd like it to be, that's where prayer comes in. And you're discerning not just what God's word says, but how that relates to this specific situation, right? And how I might navigate this through prayer and what might be the next decision to figure out if this is good, because you might not know if it's good or not until you take a step forward towards it, right? You see it at a distance and you're like, that looks like a good idea. 
that could really help me get out of this financial pickle I've been in for three years. And you get closer, you make a step towards it, and you're like, whoa, that's contrary to God's word. I'm out. And you got you only got closer to figure out that it was not the right thing to do. So good, you exercise discernment. But the secret will of God, the will of God for you personally, it's it's easily recognized the more you meditate on the scripture. I get it. There are better things to do in your mind. There are better things to do than read the Bible. There are more exciting and entertaining things to do than just read the Bible. I get that. But do you understand like how crucial it is to meditate on the scriptures, to know the word of God, to know his ways? Because we're in, in real time situations. You're going to have to lean on what you've already come to understand, right? When I, in, in, a decision, in a situation where it's like, make a decision right now, I don't have time to gain new understanding. I'm going to employ what I've already come to know. And if you haven't sat with the word of God, and if you don't know the, the ways of God well enough in that moment, then what are you going to lean on if there's not much there to help you? I'm encouraging you to spend time, sit at the feet of Jesus, open his word, discover just how beautiful and deep the, the well of scripture goes and the understanding and the revelation and the compilation of it, the, the incredible intricate detail from Genesis to Revelation, even though it's, you know, 66 books composed over the period of what, four or 5,000 years, 6,000 years, you have, you have all, it's like every biblical author is reading from and writing from the same mind one cohesive narrative when most of these people are on different different continents different season of, of human history they don't even know each other the scripture is amazing the fourth thing you know as you discern the will of god as you think through is be willing to surrender to his will because it's better than yours I promise. You have a picture of your life that's like, that's perfect. And there might be some things God's like, yeah, those are good. But the other things you've added, those need to go. Those are not good. James 4 talks about submitting to God. Submitting. God opposes the proud. The call to submit is not just for the unbeliever. I think contextually here, he is calling the unbelievers to submit. To draw near to God in order to be purified and cleansed because they're double-minded sinners and believers aren't sinners. So I believe contextually James 4 is talking to unbelievers who are reading this. You know, they're believers too, mainly, but they're also unbelievers who have not repented, who have not turned to God. So humbling and submitting to God is not just something I do as an unbeliever once. You know, and now I'm a believer, I don't have to submit. It's a daily Daily, daily call to go, Lord, I surrender. I know I think I know best, and I want this so badly. And I want it to work out. I'm afraid that it won't work out. I'm terrified. It keeps me up at night thinking about if they don't get healed, if they don't get out of the hospital, if you don't come through financially as quickly as we need. It terrifies me, but Lord, I'm surrendering my ideal plan for my life. And I'm saying that you are in charge. It says God opposes the proud. Some of you are very proud. And God's opposed to you positionally. 
So this is not God changing, this is us changing. He gives grace to the humble. It's your choice whether you're gonna remain proud and obstinate and hard-hearted, or if you're gonna be humble to the truth and be like, you know what, I'm open. Give me more of this Christian stuff. Give me more evidence. Let me evaluate it objectively and not read, you know, read it through my presuppositions and my bias. Be humble. Talking to the unbeliever here. Now, believers, be humble and realize that everything you have is a gift. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does submission look like? It actually looks like stiff-arming the devil in the face. Okay? That's biblical submission to God. You're not submitting to God while you walk in the ways of the enemy. (laughs) You're not like following the devil and your flesh and the world and going, God, I submit to you while I commit this heinous sin and kill a few people and do drugs for a couple nights. That's not submitting to God. Submitting to God, just like it says, I think in... I forget where in the Old Testament, but the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, turn away from evil. Here, submitting to God is to resist, stiff-arm the devil in the face and say, I don't want your ways. I don't want your your assumptions. I don't want you to speak. I don't want you to influence my life. I'm stiff-arming you in the face. God, I submit to your ways. It's to to say, God, I'm going to follow you as, as my shepherd. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And then draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Right? We do that. We do this thing where it's like, God, I'm going to draw near to you while I'm walking in the ways of the enemy. Well, then you're not drawing near to God. You're just trying to get him to you know, approve your darkness. You're just trying to get him to approve of your sin. He won't do that. It's contrary to his ways. Submitting to God means I not only, you not only define good and evil for me, Lord, but I will do what you say is good and avoid what you say is evil. 1 Peter 4.19, the context is suffering, being persecuted, difficulty. It says, let those who suffer according to God's will. Does the will of God include a degree of unavoidable suffering that comes attached to a sinful, broken world? Apparently it does. This doesn't mean God's will is for you to suffer. This means God's will, which is what is good for you, includes the suffering this world brings. If you signed up to follow a God that's going to help you avoid every form of suffering, you don't understand, understand the gospel, you don't understand who God is, you don't understand what He wants for you. He's going to bring you through difficulty to, to absolutely transform you and strip you of those things that are killing and suffocating you. And sometimes that includes being brought through Incredible pressure. So let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does Jesus say as he breathes his last? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus committed himself fully to the will of the Father. He said, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Because I'm so confident in who you are, I'm so sure of your character, and I know what you're going to do, that I'm able to go through hell and know you're going to pull me out of it. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in the fire, going, we will not bow down to King Nebi. (laughs) We're going to stay here even if it kills us. And God meets them. They entrusted themselves. 
It means you say, God, your ways are higher than mine. Even when I'm so sure that my ways are right, I'm open to being wrong if you say otherwise. Some of you aren't open to being wrong and you're saying, I trust God to lead my life. Yeah, up to a point. You trust him to lead you as long as you agree with him. But the minute you have a different opinion, the minute you disagree with what God's doing in your life, you assume I know best and I'm out of here. Entrusting your soul to God is saying, I'm going to keep doing good, even if it brings me into the valley of the shadow of death, even if it brings me into a territory where there's more enemies, even if it brings me into more pressure that's added to my life. Because I know you're good, I know what you've said, I know your will, I know your word. And I'm able to commit myself to, it's hard to entrust yourself to someone that you don't know. And so as I'm calling you guys to like trust God with, with your lives and lean on him and like, you know, trust fall into the arms of God by doing what he said, even if it goes against your opinion and even if you disagree with it. When I tell you that, some of you like signed off because you don't know him yet the way he really desires for you to know him. You don't know him yet. Enough to go, yeah, I trust you with this area of my life with my financial situation, with my relationships, with the addiction I'm going through, with my kids, like you, you don't, with the healing, with the sickness, with the therapy I'm going through, you don't trust him with that. Cause you haven't spent enough time in the scriptures to see him as the good father who brings you through it. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane knew his father. It doesn't mean surrender becomes incredibly easy. It just becomes easier. And so when you talk about submitting and resisting the enemy and his ways of pride, his ways of rebellion, his ways of self-righteousness. Like John says, you're embracing humility. You're humbly walking in, in a lowly estate like Jesus did. Because the devil wants to get you all hyped up and prideful and self-righteous and uh, you're the man and God wants you to be lowly and meek and tender-hearted and actually get down on your knees and wash the feet of those around you. But if you resist that, you're embracing the ways of the enemy and the pride that he has, and you're not trusting God with your soul. The opposite of humility is pride. You think you know better, you think you're the center of the universe, you think it's all about you, you think God exists for you. You think that, you know, everyone exists to be a, just a pawn in your life. Whereas God says, be humble. See your life as a reason that someone else's life is gonna be better. See your own life for how it can benefit other people. This is what um, Job 28 says. This is helpful to know. It's easier to trust a God that you know this about. It says God understands the way to it. He knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything. He sees everything. So play nice. That's what he sees, everything. Therefore, Proverbs 19.21 can say, many are the plans in the mind of a man. You and I have a lot of plans. There's a lot of plans that you and I don't follow through with because we're like, that's stupid. That was a dumb plan. We fantasize as we're falling asleep of all the things we could be doing, all the things we plan to be doing, all the things like we 
want to be able to do, and we make all these plans. You know what's great? It's that the purpose of God will stand. You can make all the plans in the world. You can say, hey, by this age, I'll be out of college. By this age, I'll have an internship. By this age, I'll be married. I'll have this much money in the bank. I'll be healthy until this point. I'll die in, in my 80s. You can make all these plans. Ultimately, the purpose of God doesn't violate your free will. God just lets you make decisions up to a point, And there are certain decisions that he will bypass and go, nope, not letting that happen. And that's not a violation of your free will. He let you decide to make it, and he stopped it. He let you try and get further, and he said, nope, no further. But there are some plans that you and I make, and God goes, okay, I'll let you have it. And it's going to destroy you, but ultimately my purpose will stand. The whole idea of God's purpose standing doesn't just mean, hey, God's going to do his ultimate plan of redemption and bring in a new creation and Jesus coming back to establish his kingdom. That's going to happen no matter what. No one can stop it. That's not all that it means, though, that the purpose of God will stand. That, this means when you make a decision, you assume it's going to result a certain way. But God is the one who decides whether or not it's going to result the way you think or the way you want. So you can make plans. You say, yeah, tomorrow I'll be at the beach with my family. Yeah, he determines whether you get there safely. He determines whether there's even a beach to get to. He determines whether your heart's beating to be able to get into a car and drive. All these different things that you forget you're not in control of. You're not in control of the flow of traffic and the breath in your lungs and how many years you have on the earth. He is. So that makes it easier to surrender to God when you're like, oh, so you're saying that I can make all these different plans and forget God and go forward with it and he can shut it down and make sure it doesn't work out? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. The results of your labor are in his hands. The last thing is this. Stand on the word of God. I've been doing this for 60 63 years, brother. <laughs> you're, talk, you're preaching to the choir. Am I, though? Because standing on God's word is being a cliche we put on every shirt that we want to sell in our Christian t-shirt stores. But standing on God's word means his word is not just another option. It's my only standard. Standing on God's word means I don't budge, I don't waver, even when it's hard, even when I have a different opinion, even when I don't agree. His word is the standard for my life. I do what he says. Standing on God's word means you don't obey up to a point. And then, you know what? I'm out of here. I tried. Standing on God's word means it's the foundation you're building your life on. Conditional obedience is not waiting on God. Thank you, Pack Attack, for that gift. Y'all just coming through today. Conditional obedience is not waiting on God. When you're like, I'll obey if. I'll do what he says if it works out like this. I'll do what he says if this happens. No, no, no. God doesn't need to give you any conditions for him to meet in order for you to listen to his voice. But we're also not saying, hey, mindlessly obey God. No, waiting on God is obeying, knowing who he is because we've experienced him. He's proven himself. We've, we've read about him in his word. We've seen him at work in our life. We've seen him at work in the world. It's not without evidence. It's not mindless. Psalm chapter 25, verse 21. 
It says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. So as we talk about waiting on God, what does it mean? It means you're living a life of integrity and a life that is upright. It's morally correct in the sight of God as you wait for him. To not live with integrity and to not live uprightly is to not be preserved because there are certain things that God has said, hey, who was I talking to the other day about this? There's so much that God has for us, but the question becomes, are you positioned to receive it? So if God says, look, when you live with integrity and uprightness, there's preservation there for you. It preserves you from unnecessary struggles, unnecessary difficulty, unnecessary pressure and suffering. It'll preserve you. And then we don't live with integrity and uprightness and we're living however we want, living like the world. And we're like, God, why aren't you preserving me from these calamities? Listen, you weren't positioned to to experience the preservation I have for my people. You were outside of, of the safety net of my word. You are outside of the bubble shield. If you ever played Halo 2, you're just throwing them bubble shields. You're out, you're outside of the bubble shield called my word. Okay, and when you step outside of the confines of my word and you contradict what I say to do and you go against my ways, don't expect my provision and blessing outside there in the wilderness. So waiting for God means I'm positioned, right? to receive what he has for me because I'm living the way he's told me to, right? And if you're not living the way God has called us to in his word, and you know it, you know your sexual purity is off, impurity is off the chart. You just leave around with everyone you see. Hey, you're on Tinder like every other, every other night, man. And you're just like, I need to hook up. Don't expect God to preserve you in that. He's gonna correct you out of that. It's gonna feel not good. I'm telling you, the blessings of God are found. The blessings of God are found in obedience to him. If my son um, runs away from me, now he's six now, just runs away, just one night, gets up and leaves, 3 a.m. instead of asking for a sandwich like he does at three, he just leaves, walks out the front door and just starts walking away. If he ends up getting in incredible trouble and gets hurt, Is that my fault or is that his for walking away and leaving the protection of his father? This is the story of the prodigal son. How does he end up in a pigsty? How does he end up in a famine? How does he end up starving to the point that he's saying, I would love to eat that pig slop. I don't even know what it is, but oh man, with some ketchup, that'd be super good. How does he get to that point? He left the protection of his father. Can a believer do the same thing? It doesn't mean you're not saved anymore. It doesn't mean you're not a child of God. It means you've wandered outside the the perimeter of his protection and blessing into anti-integrity and anti-uprightness, which is to say disobedience. Same idea seen in Psalm 31. So if you're like, I'm waiting on God and, and, and you're doing what you know goes against his word, you are not waiting on God, period. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves who? The faithful. But he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Hmm. 
We'll end on Psalm chapter 130. Go there with me. Like there's so much protection and blessing and joy and comfort and, and purpose to be found in the presence of God on the path marked out by his word. But if you're walking outside of that, why would you expect the blessings of the father uh, outside of the life he's called you to live? Psalm 130, it says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness. So that we serve a God who wants to forgive. He's not eager to mark sin. He's not eager to condemn. He's not eager to, to you know, send someone away from his presence for eternity. He's eager to to forgive. He's got his hands out all day long saying, I'm waiting for you to humbly admit your sinfulness and your inability and turn to my son for righteousness. I'm waiting to forgive you. Now watch, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And here's why I wanted to title this waiting in truth, because here's what it means for the psalmist to wait for God. He hopes in his word. He hopes in what God has said. What does that assume? That assumes he knows what God has said in the word, in the Torah at this point. He knows who God has revealed himself to be in the Torah. He knows. Therefore, he has something to accurately hope in. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Watchmen are on edge, hoping no enemies invade in the nighttime. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Well, you just said you hope in his word. Same thing. To hope in what God has said is to hope in who he is. When you disconnect the two, you have a weird faith. Because Jesus is the word of God incarnate, the eternal word emanating from the Father, who becomes our hope in this life. And he brings our salvation and he conquers our sin and he deals with our death and he dies and pays for all of our sin debt. He takes it all upon himself in our place. So therefore, in one sense, we're hoping in Jesus as the word of God, but also what God has declared about his son and what God has declared about himself and what God has promised for his people. We hope in that. Meaning you run to that for protection and safety. You find security in that. You find a sense of confidence in that. It becomes a joy to you and a safety place, a sanctuary. So hope in the Lord. With the Lord, there's steadfast love. With him, there is so much redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the context here is the psalmist crying out for Israel to be handled justly and to be blessed again. Hope in the Lord. There's steadfast love. If you don't know the word of God, then you don't know his love as much as you could. And therefore, when, when hard times come, you don't have much to hope in because you don't know the reason for your hope. You don't know how great his love is. You don't know what he's said about himself and what he's promised for you. You don't know him. God reveals himself to us from heaven in his word, which gives us reason to hope. 
and gives us a source of hope. So to wait on God means I not only hope in what he said, right? I wait on him by doing what he said. Don't tell me you hope in the promises and the word of God when none of those promises or words guide your life, right? Um, that's like saying, uh, if someone comes to me and says, hey, your house is on fire, right? Dark scenario. Your, your family's in trouble, right? They call me and they go, your house is on fire. Uh, I either believe them or I don't. How do you know I believe them? If I believe them, I'll take action. I'll call 911. I'll drive a million miles an hour back to my home. I'll call my neighbors to see if they can get involved. I'll, um, for everyone who wants to know the Bible app that I'm using, I, I make this announcement like every video, but it's called Bible Study. Okay, it's that simple. Bible Study. It's by Olive Tree. So moderators, for the rest of the next 70 years, you moderate this, this stream, just tell people, Bible Study by Olive Tree. Um, this is why I didn't want to answer that because I don't want to lose my train of thought. Um, you know, and I, and I make the right action and I call and I show up. That's how you know that I believed what he said, that my house was on fire. If I don't believe him, right? If I don't believe him, then I won't go to the house. I won't call and I'll be like, you're just messing around, man. I don't believe you. So to hope in God's word or to believe and trust in the word of God is to take action. It means you're doing what he said. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who do um, what the word of God says, or blessed are God of those who obey, something like that. Or, blessed rather are those who do the word of God. I think it's just what he says. Blessed rather are those, I think it's keep. Yeah. We'll end here. Luke eleven twenty eight. If If you're waiting on God, and the word of God isn't part of the equation, and the word of God isn't guiding your decisions and your life, and the word of God is not a hope to you at all, and you're not opening the scriptures, you're not getting to know your father, I would venture to say you're not waiting on God. Because the word of God is central. It, it not only provides me, helps me discern what to wait for and helps give language to what I'm waiting for, it provides the framework for my waiting. Like, my ability to wait is built on what I know of God. What I'm waiting for and my ability to discern that is built on the word of God. My waiting period and what I do with that is built on the word of God. So Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Thank you, James. Man, James got that link. So, we have two more episodes of waiting on God, I encourage you guys to really act and don't just listen. Like Jesus just said, blessed are those who hear and keep it and do it. If you just hear all this and it encourages you to do nothing, and what are we doing here, man? <laughs> like this should drive you to action. This should drive you to do something different. This should drive you to reevaluate your faith and where you're at with Jesus and, and where you can, you can spend more time in his word and where you can meditate on his word throughout your day. This should drive you to make some kind of responsive decision. So I encourage you guys, while you're waiting on the Lord, stand on his word. Surrender to his will. Discern his secret will and know his general will by spending time in the scripture. 
Apart from that, it's hard to wait on him. It is. But it becomes easier the more you know his ways and his character and his heart and his will. All right? If you guys didn't already know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. So you can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. All the links are in the YouTube description below. And you can check out all the free resources we have. Devotional studies, skills courses, they're all free. If you want to learn how to read the Bible, if you want Bible study cheat sheets, which is just all the keywords for that book laid out. Um, if you want to some devotional studies, some reading material, completely free. Um, as well as our online church community, if you have the Discord app and it's downloaded, join our online server. Be a part of our online community um, where we pray with each other. It, it's, it's legit. When you, when you get there, it's going to be overwhelming, but there is an instructional video and there's people to help guide you. So come and join the online church if you want fellowship or extra you know, Bible study outside of your church services on Sunday. And you can get a copy of my book. It's called Fruitful, at least my first book. Um, the Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant Christian Life. So you can get a copy on Amazon by clicking it here or sample it. You can uh, check out our podcast. So all these sermons are put out there on audio, um, as well as our second podcast, which is Above Reproach Church Podcast. You can find that on really all podcast platforms that are available. So we have two podcasts. All these videos are put into audio, and then the Above Reproach Church Podcast is for church life, all right? And then if you'd like to help us, this whole ministry is crowdfunded. I have a wife and two kids. We have a bunch of people that serve and make this possible. So if you want to be a part of what we're doing, we're, te we're trying to reach people for Christ and move people towards Jesus. Um, we're trying to teach people how to read the scriptures so they can learn um, or so they can teach and live the scriptures themselves. And so if you think that's an admirable mission, you can give... Uh, send a check to P.O. Box 338 Green Cove Springs. Don't make it out to Above Reproach Ministry. Make it out to my name. You can donate through debit or credit card right here. Go to AboveReproachMinistry.com forward slash donate. Um, you can also give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, and get some church merch while you're at it. All right? And wear a reminder of Jesus on your body and open up discussions. We also have digital products you can get. Um, but everything we try and do that's like really, really... Um, essential and helpful is, is free on the website. All right. I think that's it. Got the podcast, got the church, got the resources, got the ways that you can give. Uh, that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the Q&A and we'll go a little deeper and hopefully you'll have questions by then from me and it'll be a good time. All right, guys, jump on the discord in about 15 minutes. Um, Father John will be there to lead discussion and prayer, and I'll be there to chime in and listen. So come and join. All right. I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus, and bye.